Welcome to the Serial Audiobook Alive, an unabridged podcast of Book One in the Generations Trilogy. Written by Scott Sigler. Performed by Emma Galvin. This novel is available in print, ebook, or as a full length audiobook. For links to Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or Audible, please visit scottsigler.com slash alive. Fifteen. We walk uphill. And we walk and we walk and we walk. It doesn't make sense. Even if our coffin room was far below ground, shouldn't we have made it to the surface by now? And we still haven't seen any windows, any hint of the outside. My feet hurt. They were numb from the constant stepping. But when we met Bishop's group, we stopped for a bit. It was like blood flowed into them again. My feet thought they were getting a rest. Now that I've put them back into action, they are not happy. It feels like my bones will soon wear right through muscle and skin. I hear the others talking behind me. My group and Bishop's marchers alike say out loud the same questions that run through my head. They know they have families, but can't remember any faces. They know they went to school, but can't recall what classes they took, their teachers, their classmates. No specifics of any kind. They want to know what their symbols mean. They want to know their first names. As we walk, I try to meet some of the new people. There is Kay Smith, the only circle cross, a girl so thin she looks like she's on the edge of starvation. She has stunning gray eyes, olive skin, and short brown hair. She's the tallest girl among us, almost as tall as O'Malley. G. Beckett has tan skin and strawberry blonde hair. His symbol is a jagged circle, like Spingates and Gaston's. Beckett doesn't say much. He seems younger than me, not in size, but rather in the way he carries himself. There are six empty circles besides Bello and me. E. O'Karaki, a boy with the blackest skin of any of us. Y. Johnson, a girl with dirty blonde hair who won't look anyone in the eye and mumbles to herself. R. Cabral, a girl who looks anyone and everyone in the eye but says nothing. And O. Ingolfson, a squat blonde boy who looks as strong as Bishop although he isn't as tall and clearly isn't as coordinated. The last two circles are J. Harris and M. D'Souza, a boy-girl pair who go out of their way to avoid talking with me. The circle stars hate that I won the vote. Most ignore me. The bald, brown-skinned girl, Y. Bawden, will answer my questions, but she doesn't trust me. At least she isn't openly hostile. You, Coyote whose tan skin has a reddish hue that looks like his mother gave him a bath and scrubbed him way too hard, and W. Visca, a big boy with light pink skin and blazing white hair, all but snarl at me every time I look at them. The person who surprises me the most, though, is Bishop. I expected him to carry a grudge, maybe plot a way to take back the spear or fight me for leadership the way Yang did. Bishop does none of that. He's happy, he's talkative. In fact, he won't stop talking. His constant chatter is the only thing that raises everyone's spirits. Time drags, as do our feet. I honestly don't know how much longer we can go on. It is maybe five or six hours after I got the spear that the first of us falls, a half-circle girl named Q Opkick. 
Before I can reach her, Bishop already has her over his shoulder. He's smiling, nodding, like someone passing out from lack of food or water, or both, is the most normal thing that could happen. More will fall, and soon. There is nothing we can do for Opkick, but press on. So we press on. My feet, they hurt so bad. Perhaps an hour later, I almost fall myself. I stumble, but O'Malley catches me, writes me. He does that strange thing again, where he can kind of speak to me with his eyes. Those eyes say, don't fall. If you do, we're lost. I nod. I can keep going. And then finally, far up ahead, our hallway. It ends. I move faster. So do the others. Headaches and thirst and dry mouths forgotten. When Bishop had his group marching in step, it made a sound like the steady beat of a big drum. I don't make anyone march. As we quicken our pace and break into a run, it sounds like rolling thunder. The hallway ends in a dusty, rusted archway. Two stone slabs, a thin line down the middle separating them. A door. We stop. We stare. It could be nothing. It could be everything. Is this it? Did we make it? Does that door lead us out of this horrible place? Does it lead to food and water and people, maybe our parents? Bishop, I say, give up kick to someone else. I need you up front with me. O'Malley glances my way, a sour expression on his face. He doesn't like that I want Bishop up front, but that's stupid. Bishop is the biggest and strongest of us. Of course you should be the first through. Bishop joins me in front of the door. Elsafani is at his sides. The twins came without being asked. Where Bishop goes, they go. I look back to Spingate. Open it, I say. She nods rapidly, excited at this new puzzle she must solve. She brushes dust off the metal frame, exposing embedded jewels. She studies the archway for a moment. I see her lips moving. She starts pressing jewels. She shakes her head. She got it wrong. Gaston joins her. He points at a pair of yellow jewels. Spingate nods, presses them. Then she presses a green one. A hidden panel pops open. Inside the panel, two dark holes. She looks at me, asking for permission as always. I glance at Bishop. I have a connection with him that isn't there with O'Malley. I can't explain it. It's something I feel in my stomach, in my bones. O'Malley is smart. He helps me keep things organized and calm. But Bishop is like me in one key way. He wants to lead. He and I are willing to make decisions and take responsibility for them. Bishop grins at me. Perhaps behind this door is the adventure he seeks. He's ready. So am I. I nod at Spingate. Open it. She slides the scepter's prongs into the holes. They click home. She lifts. The hall groans and shakes. With a grinding sound, so loud, some people cover their ears. The stone doors begin to shudder. 16. The doors slowly slide open. Hot, humid air billows out. So does a stench, something rich and awful. Spingate runs to me. M, the air is damp. That means there might be water in there. 
I nod. I'm not sure if she thinks I'm stupid, or she says whatever crosses her mind, no matter how obvious it might be. The doors slide wider. It's dark inside, pitch black, the hallway's light creating a widening rectangle of brightness on the floor beyond. For a moment, I hope I am seeing an illusion, or that my eyes are playing tricks on me. I want to see grass and trees. I want to see the outside. What I want doesn't matter, though. Reality is what it is, and the reality I see before me is just another room. Little Gaston's face wrinkles up. He waves a hand in front of his nose. Oh, that's awful. Bishop, if you're going to fart, couldn't you at least walk to the other end of the hall? Bishop turns toward him. Gaston melts away again. Snarling, Bishop goes to give chase, but I grab his arm. Stay with me, I say. We don't know what might come out of there. His pale face flushes. He knew better than to let Gaston get to him at a time like this. Bishop steps to the widening space between the doors, his knees bent, his hands out in front of him and ready to take on any danger. I hear kids moaning from the smell pouring out of the room. I think I know that odor, something from school. I wish I could remember. If I ever find the people who made us forget everything, I swear to Talalok, I will stab them all. Talalok? Who is Talalok? That's a name, like Tchaikovsky was a name. But I don't think Talalok is a musician. I don't know who it is, but at least the name gives me a bit of hope that maybe my memories will come back. The heavy doors are halfway open when the right one grinds and slows. It starts to shudder up and down, the floor bouncing under our feet each time it descends. Then it lurches and comes to a stop with an ear-splitting crunch. The left door keeps going. It slides all the way into the wall, making the hallway vibrate one final time. The right door, obviously broken, tilts away from us at a slight angle. The area beyond the opening is completely dark, except for the hallway's light, which plays off a hard floor, littered with bits of metal and streaked with some kind of dirty grime. O'Malley leans close to me. Em, what do we do? We can either turn around and leave, or we can enter a dark, stinky room so humid that just standing outside of it is already making me sweat. But like Latu said, I'm not going back. We need light, I say. I turn to Spingate. Any ideas? I ask. She clutches the scepter in both hands, holding it to her chest. She shakes her head. Bishop silently steps into the dark room. Elsafani at his sides. It annoys me he went without my say-so, but only a little. The metal bits are springs, bars both round and flat, screws and nails and random pieces that used to be part of who knows what. Hanging down from somewhere above the archway, I see white cloth. Banners of some kind, perhaps? Gaston steps in front of Spingate and faces her. He's staring at, is he staring at her breasts? Spingate notices it too. Her cheeks redden and she looks at me, silently asking me to do something about it. Gaston, I say, you're being rude. He looks at me confused, then his eyes widen with understanding. Oh, no, I'm looking at the scepter. He grins up at Spingate. 
But don't get me wrong, you've got really nice boobs. I can't believe he said that. Spingate is flustered and doesn't know what to do. Gaston holds out his hand toward her. Can I see the scepter? I feel like it. We need light and it should. He struggles to find the right words. You know what I'm saying? She shakes her head, still flustered at his comment. Then her eyes narrow. She looks at the scepter anew. Her lips move for a few seconds and she nods. Yes, I think I know what you mean, she says. It should. Her voice trails off. She keeps her grip on the scepter's bottom end, but tilts the top toward Gaston, letting him hold the prongs. They lean in together, hovering over it, examining it. From inside the dark room, Bishop calls to me. Em, it's safe to come in. I'm excited and bothered all at once. Excited because it feels like Bishop is looking out for me, checking for danger to keep me safe. Bothered because I'm in charge and he went in without asking or being told to do so. That's not how things are supposed to work. So did he do it because he wants to protect me? Or because he doesn't respect me as the leader? No, I'm being ridiculous. If Bishop was trying to protect anyone, it's probably Spingate. I see the way the boys look at her. And this isn't about my leadership either. If I'd had time to think about it, I would have asked Bishop to go first anyway. He's bigger, faster, and stronger than everyone else. I know it. He knows it. He did what I would have asked him to do. Only I didn't ask. Bishop leans out of the dark room. Em, come on. And watch your footing, it's slick. I step through the opening. O'Malley comes in with me. My eyes adjust quickly to what little light there is. This place is bigger than our coffin room. It's quite a bit wider, and so long the end of it is lost in thick shadows. There's nothing much here other than the bits of metal scattered across the floor. I take another step and my foot slides, almost making me fall. Told you to be careful, Bishop says. I kneel and put my fingers to the floor. It's all greasy. What is this stuff? O'Malley points to the jammed door. Gotta be from that. The top of the stone door cracked through the archway, bending the metal and ruining the wall. The door must weigh a lot. It looks like it might tear through at any second, fall flat and smash whatever happens to be beneath it. Stay away from the door, I say, loud enough for everyone to hear. It's dangerous. I feel the cold grease soaking through my socks. The stuff is all over the place, Bishop says. The entire floor is covered in it. I think it helps the door open. It must have leaked out, which is maybe why the door jammed. I wonder how long it has been since someone came down here to fix the things that need fixing. Maybe this room isn't important to whoever runs this place. Why fix something if no one is using it? Everywhere I step, greasy dirt crunches and slides under my tired feet. I examine the walls. Stone, like a line of carvings running along them. It's too dark to see details, but my fingertips recognize rough outlines. Suns, jaguars, stepped pyramids, faces with big flat noses. It stinks so bad in here. I know this smell. If only my brain could make the connection. A glance back out the door shows the others grouped together, staring into the room, 
hoping we find something to eat or drink. The white shirts of Bello and Aramovsky merge with the white shirts of Latu, Ingolfson, Beckett, and the others. There is no difference between my people and bishops. We are all in this together. Except for the circle stars, I remind myself. They are different. The room's darkness seems to come alive. It swirls around me, envelops me. Circle star, young, his face so close to mine, his eyes wide. He knew he was going to die. He knew it, and there wasn't anything he could do but wait for death to come, wait in agony, crying out for his mother. The hand on my shoulder makes me scream. Bishop steps back, surprised, holds up both hands, palms out. Sorry, Em, he says. I called your name, but you didn't hear me. Are you okay? I nod quickly. I see El Safani looking at me. Maybe scowling is a better word. Do they think I'm weak? I'm okay, I say. What did you want? He points up to the banners. Did you see what's on those? I look at them. At first, they are subtle variations of darkness and shadow, as gray as ash. But after a few seconds, patterns form. The banners, no flags, hang from poles mounted in the wall above the archway. Maybe a dozen flags, all white or perhaps light gray, and they all have the same symbol, an empty circle. Same as yours in Okerakis, Bishop says. I would give anything to know what our symbols mean. Do they define who my people were? Maybe my tribe, as Bishop would say? Was this room for my tribe? Alone, I walk deeper into the dark room, leaving the cracked archway behind. I still feel a slight pull against my legs. I'm walking uphill. As it has been from the beginning, that pull is very small, so tiny it's barely noticeable. But step after step, minute after minute, hour after hour, it's getting to me. It's driving me nuts. I led us here. I led us to nothing. I hoped so badly those doors would open to the surface and we would be out. This is all too much. My decisions haven't produced anything good. You tried, Em, but you failed. Shut up, Yong, I whisper. Please, shut up. I want to cry, but just like before, the tears don't come. Crying doesn't fix anything. Isn't that what the voice in my head told me? Have to focus. Everyone is counting on me to keep them safe. There's something off to my left by the wall. A few steps take me to it. It looks like a column of white stone, cracked in the middle, the top half lying broken and crumbled on the greasy floor. I recognize it from Gaston's story about the haunted room. It's one of the chest-high pedestals he talked about. I wonder what rested on the flat top before someone smashed it to bits. A boy approaches. I sense him before I see him. O'Malley, there in the dark beside me. M. The others are getting upset, he says quietly. They want to know if they're supposed to come in or if we're going back. I'm upset too, but does that even matter to him? Go back to where, I say, unable to hide the frustration that drips from my voice. To our hallway of bones or to Bishop's haunted room? I can barely see his face. Well, we can't go forward, he says. It's too dark. No, we're not going back. 
not while I am the leader. All this effort can't be for nothing. Sooner or later, going up will take us out. We go straight. O'Malley pauses, perhaps trying to choose the right words. The others aren't going to like it, he says. I laugh, an evil, dark-sounding thing that would make me doubt any leader who made it. O'Malley, I don't like it, but we don't have a choice. We hear a commotion behind us, back by the broken archway. M, come here! It's Spingate, silhouetted by the hallway's light. Gaston is with her. He's holding the scepter, but that's not what he's looking at. Hey, O'Malley says. Is that little guy staring at Spingate's? I grab O'Malley's arm and pull him along, cutting him off. Come on, let's see what she wants. Careful steps along the greasy floor bring us back to her. Spingate's face is alive with joy. If we could turn her excitement into light, there wouldn't be a shadow in the place. Look what Gaston and I found, she says. Gaston, show her. He holds the scepter upside down and touches a series of gems. A tiny cone of flame suddenly hisses out the end. So bright, I hold up a hand to shield against the powerful light. He shuts off the flame. Ghost images dance in my vision. The room is pitch black once again. It's a torch, Gaston says, for welding things, I think. Spingate again jumps and claps. I'm going to have to have a word with her about that. The way her, her parts bounce around when she jumps, it's distracting even to me. I can't imagine the effect it has on the boys. So we can use the scepter to light the way, I say. That's great. Gaston gives a wincing half shrug. Well, I don't know if that's a good idea. The fire has to burn fuel, and we don't know how much fuel the scepter holds. We shouldn't use it for light, or it might burn out and we won't have the flame if we need it. I sigh. This is so annoying. Then what are we supposed to use it for, Gaston? He purses his lips. To set stuff on fire? Maybe the grease on the floor will work as fuel. If we soaked our clothes in it, found some sticks or something, maybe we could make torches. Spingate crosses her arms. What, and have all of us be naked? Gaston grins. If that's the only way, that's the only way. He gestures around the room. Do you see any other fabric around here? There is a pause, then I look up. Bishop and O'Malley do the same. The flags. Bishop, I say. Do you think you can get those down? He nods. That tall boy in your tribe, he says. What's his name? Aramovsky? Aramovsky, Bishop repeats. Will he let me and Visca lift him up? We'll have to get our hands under his feet. He might fall a couple of times, but hopefully it won't hurt him too bad. Aramovsky heard his name. He cranes his head, peering into the room, wondering what's going on. I look at the floor. The light from the hallway reflects off the smeared grime. I smile. He isn't going to like this, but I won't give him a choice. Get in here, Aramovsky, I call out. Time for you to get dirty. 17. We walk uphill. We carry torches. Aramovsky didn't get dirty. He didn't fall, not even once. Figures. With the help of Bishop and Visca, he ripped down the flagpoles. I hate to admit it, 
but Aramovsky did a good job. Spingate and Gaston used the knife to cut the flags into long strips, then rubbed them in the greasy dirt and wrapped them tightly around the ends of the flagpoles. Gaston used the scepter to set them on fire. Flames lick up from the fabric in soft, pulsing waves that are hypnotic if you look at them too long. Bella was smart enough to keep one flag whole. She tied the corners together to make a kind of bag that holds the extra grease-soaked strips. Okereke volunteered to carry the bag. Of all the circles from Bishop's group, I like Okereke the most, probably because he seems to be the hardest worker. We move through the long room, three abreast. Torchlight makes shadows that twitch and jump. The darkness seems to be a living thing waiting to pounce on us and swallow us alive. The room ends at a narrow, stone-walled hallway. Bishop and El Safani lead us in, Bishop carrying a torch. I'm in the second row, several steps behind them. O'Malley is on my left, knife in hand, and Latu on my right, also carrying a torch. The rest of the group follows after, a long procession of flickering flames lighting up frightened faces. If I ever get to sleep, if I have nightmares, I know they will happen in a place that looks like this. Bishop isn't that far ahead. He and El Safani stop, wait for me, and I soon see why. An open archway on the left and another on the right. Past those, two more of the same on either side. The flickering torches seem to make the archways waver like the twitching mouths of giant bloodthirsty monsters. I think we should look in these rooms, Em, Bishop says quietly. It's not a good idea to leave unchecked areas behind us. O'Malley shakes his head. If we look in every room we find, all our torch strips could burn out and we'd be left in the dark. Better to keep going straight as fast as we can. Aramovsky was in the row behind me. He comes closer, eager to be part of the group that's making decisions. O'Malley is right, he says. We're tired and hungry and thirsty. He half turns so the people behind us can hear him. We don't want to waste time playing games, Em. We want food. I hear grumbles of agreement, see scowls on more than a few faces. They are losing patience. They elected me leader. Did they think I could use the spear to make food and water appear out of nowhere? Be patient, I say to them all. We're going to get out of here, but I need you to be patient. I'm going to get us out of here? I'm surprised at how convincing I sound. Bishop and O'Malley both made good points. The darkness and shadows make this area feel dangerous, though. And my instinct tells me that when it comes to danger, I should trust Bishop. We'll check the rooms, I say. There might be water, but we need to do it quick so we can keep moving forward. Bishop nods. El Safani and I will make it fast. Everyone stay here. Before I can answer, Latu speaks. You take the ones on the left, we'll take the ones on the right, she says to Bishop. Faster that way. Bishop stares at her. The shadows dancing across his face make him look much older, almost grown up. He starts to speak, stops. He's not in charge anymore. He glances at me, waiting for me to decide. We'll take the rooms on the right, I say. Bishop purses his lips, then nods. All right. He waves someone forward. It's a circle star boy with skin almost as dark as Aramovsky's. Farrar, I think his name is. 
If it weren't for Bishop, Farrar would be the biggest person in our group. Everything about him is wide, from his shoulders to his chest, to his head, even his nose, which is short and flat. Keep everyone here, Bishop tells him. We're going to look at these rooms. Farrar nods once. He stands straight and tall, round shoulders back, big chest out. He might as well be a wall that blocks off the hallway. He accepts his orders, but doesn't even glance my way. That anger wells up in me again. Maybe it will take a little time to figure out how this works with Bishop. But when it comes to the circle stars, he gives the orders and they listen. Except for Latu. She seems to be on my side. But there shouldn't be sides. I have to keep reminding myself of that. Bishop grips my shoulder with his free hand. Be careful, Em. If you need help, just yell. Farrar or I will come. With that, he turns and walks into the room on the left, El Safani right behind him. O'Malley huffs, like we need his help, he says quietly. I hope we don't, but I'm glad we'll have it if we do. Latu, O'Malley, and I enter the first room on the right. The layout looks familiar. Above is an arched ceiling decorated with carvings that shift and jitter in the torchlight. There is an aisle down the middle, as there was in our coffin room, and what might be coffins on either side, but they are different from ours. Where we had two rows of detailed wooden coffins lined up end to end, with space between them, these are plain and white, lined up side to side and packed one against another, the far ends pressed against the wall. At the end of the aisle is another one of those white stone pedestals, this one broken into a dozen pieces. These coffins aren't covered. I can't see into the ones at the far end of the room, but the ones close to us are empty. The ends of these coffins don't have carvings and jewels. They don't have name plates. All they have are two flat metal discs, each the size of my fist. All the discs are scratched and dented, as is the white material around them. Like someone with hard-toed boots kept kicking the discs harder and harder. Latu walks toward the end of the room, her torch held up high. She looks down and left, down and right, over and over again. She reaches the wall, then jogs back. Empty, she says, all of them. O'Malley kneels, runs his hand over the end of a coffin. He taps it with the point of the knife. Latu, put some light on this, he says. She tilts the torch close to him. I notice the light is starting to fade. The flame is slowly burning out. O'Malley puts his finger into a deep gouge. Look at these scratches, he says, then runs his finger along it. The white material is torn and splintered along the path. It's not wood and it's not metal. I should know what it is, but like almost everything else, I can't place it. O'Malley stands. Latu holds the torch over the coffin. More scratches on the inside, both where someone would lie and on the walls that separate it from the coffins on either side. On the flatbed, there are metal fasteners of some kind, but nothing fastened to them. The fasteners are scratched and rusted over. Cracks, breaks, crumbled bits, so much damage. Looks like someone got mad at it, O'Malley says. Got mad at all of them. No padding. Latu says. Ours had padding. Did people lie in there on that hard bottom? 
O'Malley shrugs. If these are even coffins at all, we don't know if they are. But we do know. Why are these different from ours? Why are they packed in like this? Latu sees something. She reaches into the coffin, tugs at one of the fasteners. It rattles in complaint. Then she stands. She holds her hand out for us to see. It's a tiny bit of dirty white cloth. O'Malley takes it from her, holds it close to his face, squinting to see it in the fading torchlight. Looks like the same lining that was in our coffins, he says. He offers it to me. I take it. It's hard to tell from this small sample, but I think he's right. Memories of my coffin flare to life. Waking up in the dark, the white fabric splattered with my own blood. I can remember nothing from before I woke up, but everything after, including some things I'd much rather forget. Latu leans down, wipes her hand on the coffin's hard, flat bottom. So, where's the rest of the cloth? She asks. Where's the padding? Did someone take it out? I don't have the answers to her questions. Neither does O'Malley. Let's check the other rooms, I say. We turn to go. But on the way out, Latu sees something else. She reaches into another coffin, picks something up, holds it near the torch for all three of us to examine. A thin shard of something, a pale yellow splinter. It's the wrong color to have been part of the coffin. I know I've seen this material before, though, and recently. I take it from Latu, pinch it between thumb and forefinger. I look closer. A coldness washes inside my chest as I realize what it is. Bone, I say. A little piece of bone. I look in the coffins again, as if I might have missed seeing bodies, but there is nothing in any of them. O'Malley takes the splinter from me, stares at it. You're right, he says. So where's the rest of the skeleton this came from? One more thing we don't know. I take it back from him and toss it into a coffin. Next room, I say. Come on. You have been listening to Alive, book one in the Generations trilogy. Written by Scott Sigler, performed by Emma Galvin. Produced by Adrian Galvin and engineered by Steve Rickyberg. Follow Scott on Twitter and Instagram, where his handle is at Scott Sigler. S-C-O-T-T-S-I-G-L-E-R, one word, or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash Sigler. Theme music is the song Unseen Horrors by Kevin McLeod. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.